no more defenses. Our army is wiped out. Artillery, air force, everything wiped out. This may be the last broadcast. We'll stay here to the end. Welcome to Media and the End of the World. My name is Adam Kroom, and on this podcast, we discuss media and pop culture. Once again, I am joined by my colleague at the University of Oklahoma, Ralph Beliveau. Hello, Ralph, Adam. How are you? I'm well. That's good. That's good. You've recently returned from a, a trip to the, the capital city. The Big Apple, baby. The Big baby. Apple, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, we weren't able to do an, an episode last week because I took, uh, along with our colleague Debbie Yount in the Department of Advertising, we took 15 students to New York City to visit eight advertising agencies and media companies. Uh-huh. Um, so we we visited a, a handful of the the staples of New York, uh, DDB and Gray and McCann, but uh-huh. we also went to a creative shop called Seventy Two and Sunny in Brooklyn, as well as Vice Media. Um, oh, awesome! With, uh, seeing our uh, alum Haley Struck there at Vice Media, oh, getting that's a, fantastic! Getting a tour of of their digs. It was a lot of fun. Did it you was, see our guests who were here? I don't know if you remember. We had a couple people from Vice on this. This very podcast. That's right. Yeah, I wasn't. I think I was teaching when you recorded that. Oh, so oh I, okay. I wasn't on that episode, and I, I don't believe I did. Oh, okay. They were. Yeah, they were awesome. They were. It was an editor and a producer, and it's an episode you should look up because you can find it, and it's really worth listening to because it's interesting how Vice does things. I'll have to check that out. Yeah, I think I edited it. I think I've listened to it. Yeah, I, yeah. yeah. Um, but I learned, and this is going to sound very old man of me, but Brooklyn is hip. <laughs> Brooklyn is the hip part of now, New York City. Now, why is that going to make you sound like an old man? Because I use the word hip. Oh, 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 yeah. <laughs> to describe so, anything. What, what are the kids calling it these days? <laughs> oh, yeah, that's dope. That's, that's a dope place. <laughs> <laughs> but Brooklyn really is a cool place. Um, yeah. Both the culture of Vice and the culture of Sunny Two and Sunny was very, very different than sort of the the, cul- the corporate culture of Manhattan. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was very laid back, very chill. Um, in fact, Sunny Two and Sunny had just recently opened up their offices there, mostly because that's where their their young employees were working. And that's the other thing I learned about. I, I don't know if I learned, but I really notice like New York is it's such a young culture. Yeah, you know, it really is. It takes you know t- takes a lot to to make it in that kind of town. Well, you need a reasonably good income and no responsibilities That's whatsoever. It. Yeah, it's I true. Mean, if you, you probably are carrying student debt, but outside that. Yeah, you'd be, <laughs> you have to be willing to work 15-hour days yeah. and, and commute and live you know within the means of 600 square feet. I, so. I remember in, in London on one of our study abroad trips, we visited Wyden Kennedy yeah, in London, and they had they had really kind of an anti-corporate. Uh, like you walked in the front, and they had actually socks hanging up all over the mm. place. And you went back into their rooms, and in one room, this is one of the most awesome things I ever seen. The room, well, they also had a padded room, which was pretty funny. But then they had a room that was uh, two seats with a table in the middle. But the table in the middle was just the largest post-it note pad I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> so That's you could cool. write right on the table and That's take awesome. that page off. Yeah. There, I did it again. And take that. You see, I shouldn't just 
gesture because this is like audio. Nobody can see these gestures, but you could take the top page off and smack it on the wall or take yeah. it with you or whatever. Yeah. So, so it's, it's a great, great idea. So to give a visual for what just happened, Ralph just hit the microphone. And I've been joking for like the past three or four recordings <laughs> that he cannot go a recording have, without hitting it at some point. Every episode, yeah. Yeah, I think. Something, something happens where he just does it. No, um, yeah, it's what I've noticed is uh, there are some more of the historical agencies that are trying to look trendy and they, and they are like, I mean, they've all got swanky furniture and all that kind of stuff, but you can tell there's still a little bit of stiffness to it. Now, every agency likes to think they're the only agency that has a bar or like, you know, allows alcohol on premise. So they all like, like Oh no, we're cool because we're going to have like a whiskey tasting. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, but all of you guys do that. And you do that because you don't have time to go to the bar yeah. afterwards. Cause you're so tired after a long day at work, <laughs> but you know, they're going to keep you there as long as possible. Yeah, we're, gonna... the, we're the first agency with a CBD bar yeah, exactly. that's open yeah. at 6 a.m. <laughs> yeah, right. That's right. Take a shot and go sleep on, you know, the the the, the, the little bean bag and then get back to work. Yeah, it's all these unhealthy habits connected with industries. Whenever I think of people working on like a mobile truck and television, mm. um, like they used to build the consoles that you used to buy to work in the truck had ashtrays built into them. Like uh, they were just yeah. there. So yeah. that, you know, and I'm surprised they didn't have like kind of, you know, little bottle holders like you'd find at a decent bowling alley or something like that. But yeah, yeah. Old habits die hard. Yeah, but no, New York's a cool town. I would, uh, you know, you you see it, and and it's it's hard not to want to have a small taste of it. But I've become so comfortable with you know the uh, what I get in the suburbs of Middle America that uh-huh. I don't, you know obviously couldn't do it now. But it is cool, and it's really cool to give students the opportunity, particularly students from our part of the country. Who the idea of you know not just a big city but but the big city New yeah. York City as a as a potential place to be living and working and seeing that they could legitimately hang uh, is really cool mm-hmm. and it's a testament to our students that uh, nearly every agency gave really good feedback that they were asking good questions and very thoughtful and smart and intelligent mm-hmm. so yeah. that's all good uh, I, I have a transition <laughs> do it so when we were in London visiting Wyden Kennedy. And we went up on their little balcony thing that was really cool. Yeah. You look over the edge of the balcony and the guy who was giving the tour, who's actually working in New York now, but he's a Brit, looked over and he said, you see that little entranceway down there? Yeah. That was where one of the Jack the Ripper murders took place. No way. Ah, oh, it was awesome. Yeah. That's yeah. cool. So, I mean, except it was a murder. How do they was... know where they really took place? I mean, because it... that's where they found the bodies. Yeah, but I mean, is well, it... that's where they found the bodies. Yeah. You say the murder might have taken place ten feet away. But, sure. Or in, yeah, yeah. I am. I am speaking way out of uh, out of my realm, and I'm speaking to someone who's way in their realm. But isn't the, isn't the whole deal with Jack the Ripper? I mean, is it still debatable of whether these existed or not? Or is it... All the murders happened. Okay, they did yeah, happen. There's, 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 I mean, to the extent that you can ever. You know, I mean, we can get into the phenomenology of memory here about sure. you know, how we can reconstruct events we weren't witness to. I knew it. But, I knew it. You know, because all of a sudden, then you're denying the Holocaust <laughs> and you know, seeing Jesus on your toast, and and it gets really weird from there. But yeah, I mean, to the extent that we can verify things, yeah, they took place. There's still lots of interesting theories about who was responsible and that sort of thing. But there was for sure one responsible party. 
There was no, not okay. necessarily. That, that, that's I knew there's some kind of confusion yeah. there, right? Yeah, no, there is. There, well, well the, they never really found or identified, right. and it's it's really a yeah. theory of a Jack the Ripper. No, there's 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 one theory that yeah, he actually moved and then did some serial killing in the U.S. There is allegations that he was a mentally challenged member of the royal family. Um, uh, I, I've never. I there's a, a book called Jack the Ripper Diaries. It was a really big deal for a short period of time before it was found out to be a hoax that somebody had actually gone to the trouble of creating a diary of actually getting the ingredients for the ink that would have been used if Jack the Ripper had kept a diary. And it was, I mean, it was intense, the length that somebody went to to perpetrate the fraud. Yeah. <laughs> but it was worth a ton of money because the, the book really sold. Patricia Cornwall, the mystery writer, has gotten into the speculation about Jack the Ripper and everything like that. So it's a... Uh, ongoing concern but all of which is to set up the fact that to this week's episode that the the episode we're talking about is our uh recognition of halloween all hallows eve yes the uh the the the, the greatest excuse to um, cut your kids loose and let them run around <laughs> the neighborhood dressed up like something horrible and ask people for free stuff so so, I, yeah, I know your kids are past the the traditional age of trick or treating. Yes, does it still take place? It well, they actually uh, they have shifted from being the trick or treat doors to the trick or treat ease. Yeah. So yeah. they actually sit on our driveway. And I should explain that I live in a part of uh, Norman, Oklahoma, that is kind of notorious for its attraction of trick or treaters. Oh, that's fantastic! Because it's like the corner of the city, basically. Okay, and so all the people who are outside that area kind of migrate there yeah. to do their trick-or-treating. So it ranges from people who are living in small houses in rural areas to somebody who pulls up in a pickup truck and then four adults oh, get yeah. out who are wearing beat-up clothing. And, yeah. and Yeah, the pillow sacks and the yeah. black smudge on the face and uh, and the people that you're at within your rights to say, I'm not giving you anything. Yeah, you don't look like you're dressed <laughs> up. You look like you woke up from a yeah, nap just right. now and stumbled your way into my neighborhood. But there are other people. There uh, Last year, lots of Minecraft costumes uh, that were really cool, um, you know, Game of Thrones, all that sort of thing. So, but in our neighborhood, so in, in back in the day, there there's old old person talk. There was a uh, house that gave away hot dogs, which was really cool. <laughs> the house across the street from there gave away popcorn. They had a popcorn machine that they'd set on the driveway, and then we were sort of the next house behind that. And what we do is actually. Uh, show movies on our garage door. Oh, that's awesome. So people can walk by and it's usually something from the 50s or the 30s. Yeah, cool. And uh, people walk by and watch or like one of the Tim Burton things or something like that. Yeah. Not that these are legal public screenings. We just happen to be watching them in our garage <laughs> on a really big screen while people are walking by. So, but yeah, Halloween is a ton of fun. And, uh, and, and, you know, the, the I think part of it for me is always that the idea of Halloween is, um, uh, it is what is sort of traditionally referred to as a Saturnalian, which is the idea of a holiday where all the power relationships are inverted. Yeah. So uh, much as I've always thought, I actually, you know, in, in, I grew up in Chicago. And of course, as everywhere else, there are all these warnings about keeping your kids safe on Halloween, which is kind of the opposite of what's supposed to be happening. It's supposed to be uh, it's supposed to be scary and weird and, and stuff like that. Um, although there are, of course, limits to that. When I was when we lived in Wisconsin, there was a, a guy. He was fantastic. He was fairly tall. And he, starting at about 3.30 in the afternoon, he wore a long white 
gown kind of thing, and he had an alien head on with glowing eyes. And he just kind of walked kind of robotically across the street hmm. and up and down the block, apparently not going, not seeming to want to go anywhere in particular. And so he did this, and he did this, and then the trick-or-treaters started coming around, and there were more and more trick-or-treaters, and he would kind of follow behind them and just was not interacting, was not doing any human interacting at all. And um, eventually, you know, by the time it got dark and he was still doing it, some of the kids were getting a little creeped out, so one of the moms on the block walked up to him and said, excuse me, you're scaring people. And, and he didn't say anything. And she said, no, really, you're scaring people. And he goes, really? <laughs> <laughs> and then he stopped. <laughs> but it was, it, was, it was an awesome moment. And actually around the other side of the block, if you walked around the block we were on, this was another fantastic little Halloween pranky thing. Um, there was a, a big tree with a lot of leaves underneath it. And as you walked by the house, if, you, if your timing was right, suddenly this person would leap up out of the pile of leaves dressed like a wolfman and run at you at full speed until the chain on his ankle stopped him. <laughs> <laughs> and it was just, you know, it was great to watch kids freak out. And then in Chicago, I'm sorry, I have a lot of these stories. In Chicago, where the front yards are really tiny, they're like, you know, four by eight square feet, right? That's the front yard you get in a bungalow neighborhood in Chicago. Um, the, the, the people across the street from us who are an old Ukrainian family would um, put this coffin on a couple of sawhorses. And so the kid would have to go up and knock on the car and somebody would sit up out of it and give them candy. So anyway, this is all. So the whole idea being that, you know, Halloween is where everything gets turned upside down. And that's what makes it, I think, for me, just a very, very gratifying holiday. I enjoy it. I mean, we talk about this with the 4th of July, that I enjoy holidays that um, don't require any kind of family get togethers. (laughs) And not that I'm anti family get togethers, but it adds adds a level of stress, particularly when you have multiple uh, children you know, and multiple sides of the family and split families when you got to kind of tour them around everywhere. You know, what's good about Halloween or what's good about the 4th of July, at least within within our families, that it doesn't really require that you have to go see everyone to commit to celebrating the holiday itself. Right. So, yeah, there's so low pressure. Yeah. And, yeah and, and it's not like, I mean, it's kind of followed by the worst, which is Thanksgiving, right. which is, which is, you know, historically problematic, blah, blah, blah. But then, you know, also not Christmas, not Christmas. And, and so not the fun of Christmas and right. everybody overindulges and there are always uncomfortable conversations. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It, hap- it happens to take a place during election month. Yeah. Like, like all, all of the things that could make it the worst holiday. Yeah. Definitely yeah. do. And uh, so I, I do like the idea of being uh, uh, grateful. Um, I like the idea that it is a holiday that w- makes you maybe want to think a little bit about the relationship between the indigenous people that were on this continent when the Europeans got here and all that sort of thing. But, uh, yeah, otherwise, it's just a train wreck. You yeah. know, it's just uh, so. But anyway, before we get to that, we get to Halloween. That's right. So what's, what's the best costume you ever did for Halloween? I I was I like your daughters um, was very quick to transition over to handing out the candy. Uh, I okay. lo- I love that. Like I loved that side of Halloween. Yeah. Um, but I did win. I believe it was either second or third place in a Halloween costume contest one year. Um, when so I grew up during the age of Goosebumps, which uh-huh. huge. I loved Goosebumps, and uh, my dad like you know did up my face in some kind of what seemed to me to, at the time to be like professional makeup, you know, mm-hmm. but I had this gnarly, scary face in which, um, I, I, I got some kind of placing in a, in a, awesome. in a costume contest. That was, that was cool, but that was really it. Um, yeah. you know, I mean, I was your normal 
superheroes, you know, every once in a while and, yeah. and, and things like that. I did get to grow up in an age where uh, a handful of my costumes were made by family members, you know, so I had an aunt and a grandmother um, who I had a couple clown costumes. Robin Hood was a big one one year. I was uh-huh. Robin Hood, stuff like that, you know. You, you, um, didn't, you didn't come from a scary background, did you? There was not a whole lot of scary involved in all this. Oh, no, 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 no. Not at all. <laughs> not at all. See, my, my kids would come up to me with these ideas. This is this is why I'm like parent of the year, right? Yeah. Uh, or parent of the century. Because they would come up to me and said, hey, I want to be whatever for Halloween yeah. this year. And I'd say, okay, could you be a dead one? <laughs> so whatever it was you wanted to dress, dress up as, you just simply add some black eyeshadow, <laughs> maybe a drip of blood on the corner of your mouth, and you're all set, right? Yeah, yeah. No, our girls have, but, um, have freedom to be what they, they wish. Uh, Lucy, my youngest last year, set the theme in that she was Santa Claus. So that was what she dressed up as. Ah. So that made our older daughter. She became a, a present, uh, and <laughs> and my wife and I wore Christmas sweaters. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And which everyone thought this was a fantastic idea. We were the Christmas family on <laughs> That's Halloween, a great idea. which I guess is not an idea that most people come up with. But but we we thank our four year old for that one. Yeah, there's there's an episode. There's a Christmas episode of Supernatural, the, the television program Supernatural, where it's basically these um, two ancient gods, but they basically pretend to be like the old people people next door that play bridge and do yeah. stuff like that. And they just happen to also do human sacrifices you know, <laughs> on the side. But we, we kind of watch that. So that's kind of a nice, I, I really like actually the intersection of, of Halloween and Christmas, like Nightmare Before Christmas, yeah. I think is a, yeah. uh, has some great stuff to it. Yeah. So, um, but I was, but the other thing I wanted to mention was that um, I grew up in Chicago which you know, which okay, we've talked yeah. about a little bit. And Chicago has, you know, I mean, there's lots of claims you could make in different places, but um, uh, I, I would make the argument that Chicago is the most haunted city in America, which isn't probably true, because, you know, it sort of depends on what you, on, on your stand on hauntology, which is a field, but we won't go into that, because um, it's complicated, weird, and boring. But uh, but there are several there, there, there's a juxtaposition of two things. There have been, there's kind of an awful history that has kind of haunting suggestions to it, and then there are these ghost stories. Um, so one of the most famous ones that's gotten a lot of circulation is the Resurrection Mary story. I grew up in a, a suburb called Justice, which, um, if you look on a map, you'll notice there's just a black spot. No, that's not really true. There's, but there's, it's it's like a really negligible, tiny, cheap, weird little um, southwest suburb of Chicago, and but in it is Resurrection Cemetery, and uh, um, a little bit away from Justice is another town called Willow Springs, which had in it a place called the Willowbrook, which was a dinner dancing place for a long time. And so the Resurrection Mary story got connected with the Willowbrook. And it's one of, uh, uh, in the tradition of vanishing hitchhiker stories. So there's many versions of it, but the basic version goes that there's a guy, he's at a dance, he meets this girl, he talks to her a little bit, he ends up offering her a ride home, he starts driving down Archer Avenue. When they get in front of Resurrection Cemetery, she says, pull over, and he pulls over, and she jumps out of the car and runs into the cemetery. And so then he goes in after her and then eventually finds... Uh, like a piece of her clothing or something near a grave and finds her address and goes and then finds out that she died in a fire at that place many years before Whoa. or some variation like that. There's one, um, the, 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 there was a guy who used to do these tours, the ghost tours of Chicago and he would go around Resurrection Cemetery and point to this place in the bars and one of the entrances where it looked like there were 
handprints on one mm. of the bars that he claimed was when one time when she, when she was running back in she grabbed the bars and um, so there's that uh, there's you know there uh, again on the southwest side there's an area called Bachelor's Grove that's historically notorious for having floating lights huh. uh, and a house that appeared um, there were uh, a, a couple there, there were a couple of uh, kids that were murdered and their bodies were left out there and they supposedly haunt another piece of the woods that's out in that area too so there's a lot of these stories that are and there's other ones connected with like there's a ghost at St. Rita's church where it would appear in the organ loft and you know there's all these things that were and so I grew up in the middle of all this which was you know and because my dad was a horror movie fanatic I was kind of brought up into that right and so you know Halloween was always kind of an awesome experience and of course my poor children had to suffer the same fate right yeah. which meant sort of a steady diet of horror films and sort of a constant uh, oh Halloween's like the holiday so yeah. So that that that's kind of the tradition. So and so, I'm very grateful for having like. Uh, I mean, I'm very grateful for my dad for exposing me to what I think is the finest art form, which is movies that scare you, and uh, for growing up in a place that sort of had that built in already. How do but, you feel about uh, reality television shows uh, that are that are about ghost hunting? They are. How, do, how does that how does that rate on the on the scale of, of finest? <laughs> I I would I don't media. watch them because. Um, because they deliver scariness the same way that The Bachelor delivers love, mm. i.e. not. You know, yeah. it's just not. It's, um, you know, it's a basically the same thing as being with somebody who gets freaked out. Yeah. It says, what was that noise? Yeah. Is it possible to watch someone being like legitimately scared? And, and that is a emotion that can be transferred to someone else. And the, the reason I ask is it's it's watching one of those shows is like like listening to someone tell you their dream, you know, and mm-hmm. it's so vivid to them and to you. It just it doesn't translate yeah. at all. Well, that's what those shows feel like to me. They're you know, they're they're we talked about this, I think, maybe a little bit before a long time ago, but the. And I'm working on a book on horror right now, and part of that, part of what makes it such a challenge is that is that it's very individual and collective at the same time. So mm. we have, like, you know, and if you wanted to talk about politics, which we don't necessarily have to, but it's fear of the other, right? Mm-hmm. So we have cultures that become terrified that there is some alien element that's going to be coming into their community and disrupting things, uh, or that you know the boundary between life and death is more permeable, and that that therefore kind of freaks people out but but there's also a very individual level to it where something that might bother you might not bother me right um so most things that don't bother you probably bother me (laughs) this is probably i mean i i get scared if i hear like a fork fall off the counter downstairs at my house yeah and i'm like looking around like what am i gonna fight that person with and i'm like i don't have anything i'm gonna i'm gonna fight them barehanded i'm going down i'm you know that's oh no my secret was always the top to the toilet tank because you usually oh, there was a yeah. bathroom between you and the oh, okay, perpetrator, okay, yeah, yeah. and it's a big, massive thing. <laughs> and if you can't, I think somebody did this in a movie once, but this was before the movie. This was back when I was a paranoid little kid about how I was going to stop the intruder that yeah. came into our tiny, tiny little house, and it was going to be the top of the toilet tank. I was going to bash him over the head. That's a good one. So I like was, it. That was the solution. Yeah, um, because we weren't a, a gun family, you know, which would be the other route. But I think giving a giving me as a little kid a gun would be just asking for it. Right. So yeah. Half the audience is. Making fun of us for yeah, the exactly. lack of it. Yeah. That's how so, it is. So the uh, but uh, so the the other thing that I thought uh, I that would be interesting to talk about a little bit is um, uh, because this is 2018. 
And 200 years ago uh, is when Frankenstein was first published. Is that right? And so I thought it would be, we are actually having a bunch of events on the University of Oklahoma campus that are connected with other events that are happening um, at different universities. Um, and they're all lumped under, I think the title is Frankenreads. If you look that up online, you'll find that there's like suggested activities and things like that. And, you know, part of the idea is to get people, you know, doing reading groups to read uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein uh, in one of the versions that exist, and there's there's several right now. But uh, it's originally published um, in 1818 anonymously in a little three volume set, um, and uh, almost in, it, within a very short period of time, relatively speaking, it started kind of migrating out to other media. So by uh, and, and and it's an interesting it, it's it's a short book and it's got some interesting politics in it but it's a great read it's just a really it's it's an epistolary novel which means it's stories inside of stories being told through letters or people recounting things um and it's it's the novel is very different from almost all of the film versions yeah can you talk about the differences between sort of the the picture that we have of frank we sort of the the collective picture of the tall green guy with the caesar haircut and bolts coming out of his neck and 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 then what you know the 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 original conception of frankenstein or other differences as well well yeah the original the the character in the novel who is created by uh uh, victor frankenstein um who is you know kind of a a faustian character um uh, it's not very specific about how the creation actually takes place in fact Shelley kind of short changes that uh, incident a little bit and doesn't really go into a lot of detail about how the creation process actually takes place. But so there's the creation. Uh, the creator instantly realizes that it's a hideous thing, not a not an attractive, beautiful thing. And so there um, it, it gets away. It escapes and he is happy that it does. And he doesn't want to have anything really to do with it. But then it goes out and um, bad stuff starts happening. So but what's what's interesting that's different in the novel is when it among the things that it does when it escapes uh and is on its own is it uh the creature um finds a family and basically spies on them watches them and learns how to talk Hmm. and how to read by watching what they do so the the creature in the novel is a really well-educated fairly well-read monstrous murderer Uh, you know so they're like like all of them like all of them right yeah (laughs) so so there's something that's sympathetic and attractive and you know of course as time has passed just because of the the incredible beauty of the writing in the novel and the horrificness of it and everything like that, it's become um, kind of a touchstone text for a lot of people to see different things in it, to, to see feminism as, as an important theme, feminism and the idea of motherhood, because Mary Shelley had had a... Um, um, had had a miscarriage shortly before writing it and then had another child who died between when it was published in 1818 and when it actually was published under her name about uh, 10 years later. Um, there were theatrical productions that started in uh, 1823 and the theatrical productions, uh, according to the history that people put together, is sort of where a lot of the trappings that we see now are added in. I see. So the creation scene, because of its theatricality, becomes a big deal where in the book it's very passively constructed and and a lot of the book takes place in the by the north pole it takes place in the in the arctic um and it's a it's a very it's it's like dracula it's really not very um filmable 
It's, it's not good visual storytelling in its existing structure. So, so we're in a culture where, as the story's been retold and reconfigured and everything like that, you know, people will say it's not like the novel, and it's not like the novel, but it's, it's, it's connected to the same things thematically. Mm-hmm. And um, when you go through all of the different versions, and I've seen a lot of different versions of it, um, they're... You get you learn interesting things about the context of the culture when it was produced. Yeah. So yesterday we had a screening for the 1931 <laughs> Boris Karloff version, um, and uh, which is actually the fourth version of Frankenstein. The first version actually came out. It was made by uh, Thomas Edison's company, and it was made in 1910. And you can find it now online pretty easily because it's in the public domain. Uh, it's about 16 minutes long, and it does have a fairly so. This is, so now you're talking, um, you know, basically almost 100 years after it was published and, and certainly a good number of decades after theatrical productions had started. So that was the first film version, um, which was directed uh, by a guy named J. Searle Dolly. Um, and you can find stills from it and you can uh, actually find the whole film pretty easily. It actually was thought to be a lost film until it was bought by somebody from their relative who was a film collector and the person person who bought it didn't even realize what it was until the 70s. And in the 70s, it sort of became an important thing. It was like, oh, this lost film has come back into existence, which is kind of a great thing. The The other two versions that happened, and I'm not to get a little too like inside baseball here with the film history of it, but there were two other versions one called Life Without a Soul that was made in 1915. It's also lost. It was directed by Joseph Smiley and written by Jess Goldberg. It's an adaptation of the novel. Uh, about a doctor who creates a soulless man. And in the end, it turns out that a young man has dreamed the events of the film after falling asleep reading the novel. So there. That's I hate those endings. Yeah. <laughs> but there you go. Uh, but it's also a lost film. And then the, the third one was actually made in Italy in 1920, and it was called uh, The Translator Tells Monster Frankenstein, directed by Eugenio Testa, and it's also a lost film, unfortunately. Media industries are very, very bad at keeping track of things. Yeah. They're just notoriously bad at, particularly during that time period it's yeah it's, yeah it was like i thought that they thought the storage expenses were <clears throat> worth more than the money they could make off right. of it so a lot of reels were reused yes yeah so or or just dumped or right. buried in a big hole in um canada or alaska somewhere <laughs> which is yeah. really so i keep on hoping that some of the like lost masterpieces of horror film like uh, a film called london after midnight will be discovered in some you know uh under some pool and in Alaska or Canada yeah. where it finished screening and then they didn't have anything to do with it. So they just dumped yeah. it. It's interesting. I do a, so I do a similar lecture in my intro to advertising class about the history of Santa Claus, uh-huh. uh, which it, it, um, has connections. The reason I do it for advertising is that um, uh, Coca-Cola, it's commonly mis, uh, there's a misconception that Coca-Cola invented the idea of Santa Claus or put him in like a red and white suit because of brand colors and stuff like that. And that's not really true, but they, um, they, they probably have had a bigger impact on sort of creating like the image of like the, 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 the specific jolly man that we see today was sort mm-hmm. of created by, uh, Haddon Sunblom, who was an illustrator for, uh, for the ad agency, uh, NW airs that, uh, Coca-Cola used f- for the time. Um, but so a similar type of story about how Santa Claus over the time has been a reflection of the culture itself. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and sort of where his 
origin from the idea of Saint Nick and Kris Kringle and then where you know our the modern conception of Santa Claus uh, really what what takes what gets it going is the the original poem the the visit from Saint Nick or what we usually refer to as the night before Christmas the poem that we you know mm-hmm. often read uh, is really sort of the first one that, that gives you the visual of what Santa wears and what he looks like and yeah but the, really the the original idea was or at least the way he's depicted is sort of this like um like elf like character who just kind of sneaks into your house and drops things and leaves but he doesn't have like this jolliness you know he's not he's not really a friend he's 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 more of a uh, a more of like a, like a tooth fairy like character is kind of what the the the, the more original santa claus idea mm-hmm. was until it till it became uh much different in the the late 19th century. Right. Well, something that also American culture has discovered, particularly over the past decade or so, is, uh, and and I'm going to turn this back around (laughs) and stuff. I tried. Yeah, no, no, it was good. It got got kind of nice there for a little bit, (laughs) but but now it's time to go dark again. It's just, it just happened, which is the the, the Krampus legend. Yeah. So supposedly the the mythological deal was that uh, Santa would come to the house and give gifts to all the kids that were nice. And the kids that didn't get gifts from him, Santa would kind of look sadly and then leave. And then Krampus would show up and Krampus would grab the bad children and take them and eat them. Merry Christmas. There you go. <laughs> so, but this is, I mean, it's a, uh, if you, if you, again, if you poke online, you can find. Uh, when was that? What, 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 what period is that well, sort of it, most it, popular? It's, it's, it, well, it's. It's really more a question of place than time because it's 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 a it's a Middle Ages mythological construction, but it has more of a place in Eastern Europe than yeah. it does in Western Europe or the U.S. But it's become more of interest to people of late. There are there, there are Krampus festivals where if you look online, you can see video of people in just the most amazing makeup, and and it's it's usually again it's sort of like in the holiday season, <laughs> so yeah, you know it's more connected with with Christmas. But but there have been several film versions of it that again are that bridge between Halloween and and Christmas. Okay, but back to Frankenstein. So the the when I'm picturing Frankenstein in my head, where does that image of Frankenstein originate? So so Universal Pictures, which um, was one of the one of the big film companies in the very, very beginning of the sound era. Um, had had really big success with Lon Chaney in silent films, that a lot of which were horror, Hunchback of Notre Dame, Phantom of the Opera, He Who Gets Slapped, which is an amazing film, by the way, if you ever get a chance to see it. It has the cruelest ending of any film I've ever seen, um, where, because he's playing a clown, and he, you know, it's He Who Gets Slapped, so his gig is he gets, he's a tragic character who's just basically on the receiving end of physical abuse through the whole thing. And at the end of it, there's a graphic of the earth and there's a belt around it and there's a bunch of clowns and this is after he's died and they basically one, two, three, he ho, heave ho him off. Wow. It's really cruel, but it's beautiful. So in any event, so Universal... Spoiler alert, yeah, by the way. Right, yeah, yeah, I just ruined it for you. Um, but uh, yeah, so uh, so they were trying... So in the transition to sound, Universal was trying to figure out how they could capitalize on this. They had an enormous amount of success with, with this stuff, and they were working up to Dracula, which was the first horror film they did. Uh, but as they were working up toward that, they had started looking at Frankenstein as a property, and they were taking basically an American adaptation of a British play 
that, you know, again, versions of it going back to the 1820s. Uh, but it had kind of evolved over time. And uh, so lots of weird things happened to the storyline. And among them, again, as I was mentioning, the focus on the creation scene. So when Universal buys this, one of the first things they do because of the success of Dracula is they figure they're going to get Bela Lugosi to play the creature. So they did a uh, the, the director, Robert Flory, who's French, was involved in, in directing it at this point. And so they did a screen test with Bela Lugosi in what's known as the Jack Pierce makeup. Jack Pierce was Universal's resident makeup person. And there were a couple things he was playing from, kind of ignored what Shelley had described, because in the Shelley description, it's somebody who, you know, the, 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 the vision is somebody who is attractive but kind of waxy and yellow and watery and, uh, and long-haired. Um, and so there's a there's that kind of an image, but Jack Pierce's makeup was was quite a bit different, and that's where the traditional uh, image is. So he did that for the Bela Lugosi screen test. Another piece of film, by the way, that is a, a a lost piece of film that if somebody were to find that, it would be a really big deal inside the horror world, which was the screen test done with Bela Lugosi as the creature. Lugosi eventually decided that um, it was that he didn't want to play a mute character and a murderer. And so, and then uh, uh, James Whale, who had directed a film for Universal that was enormously successful, the Carl Lemley at Universal said, well, what do you want to direct we'll let you do anything you want and he said frankenstein so then they went to robert florian said guess what you're not doing <laughs> and lemley went on to actually the next year after frankenstein came out do an adaptation of poe's murders in the room morgue which is a great film with bella lugosi in it and everything like that so james whale is brought in and then so then they have to recast the role and they find Boris Karloff and they find Henry Hall or not Henry Hall, uh, Colin Clive, who plays um, Henry Frankenstein, not Victor, because the names of the, the the two lead characters got reversed in some of the plays. So uh, Henry Clairval became actually Victor Clairval and then um, uh, and, and then. Frankenstein went from being Victor to being Henry. But yeah, that was just all switching names around and everything like that. When does when does Herman Munster ruin everything for Frankenstein? <laughs> well, a long time later cuz a lot <laughs> there's a lot that happens. The actually like if you t- my guess is that with a subculture of particular horror people, they would probably look at, you know, they would look at the cycle of universal horror films, which is where you have Frankenstein, Son of Frankenstein, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, Ghost of Frankenstein and then and I think it's in 1945, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Uh. So they had moved. Oh, and then there was House of Frankenstein and House of Dracula before that. But what had happened was it went from sort of individual monster stories to what are kind of called monster rallies, which is where you start trying to dump as many monsters into a film as possible. And, and the then, monsters is like peak. So, so well, so, so that all ends like in the mid 40s. And then the monsters was, you know, the, the, they're sort of in that era where they were taking, trying to find all different ways that you could reconstruct very predictable routine situation comedies. Yeah. And so you had The Addams Family, which right. was based on a cartoon by Charles Adams, and uh, and The Munsters, which was this amalgamation of a lot of these kind of universal conventions. Um, so that becomes, you know, sort of part of the 
um, part of the history of it. But that's that's really connected to kind of the universal tradition. In terms of theatrical films, by the by the 1950s, uh, a British company called Hammer Films began to remake essentially the canon. So the canon would have been Frankenstein, Dracula, Phantom of the Opera, all of these films. And Hammer, which had been a fairly low-budget company that did mysteries and psychological thrillers, um, decided that they were going to start making gothic horror films. And they started with Frankenstein and Dracula. They made them in color. They made them for fairly low budgets. They had a very efficient um production team that involved a couple of directors, a couple of writers, a couple of actors, and they just started producing all this stuff basically from about 1957 until the mid-70s. And then they come back into existence every now and then. Hammer still exists as a company, but they do sort of like one-off uh, horror projects. But they So they kind of redid all of that. And they, had, you know, they were, of course, heavily influenced by all these universal films. And then that influence comes back to the U.S. through Roger Corman, who'd been making very, very cheap um, uh, science fiction and horror films through the 50s and then starting in the early 60s he starts making he starts taking the idea of that template of very garishly colored fairly graphic for its time horror films and he starts making all of these adaptations of Edgar Allan Poe stories so Mask of the Red Death Pit and the Pendulum uh, Premature Burial and then a couple of comedies that are kind of similar to that so those are kind of the main horror cycles for for what it's worth you have the universal cycle from basically 1931 to 1945 you have the hammer cycle from 1957 until you know roughly the mid 70s 74 75 and then there's all these things that pop up i was going to mention that um historically speaking the version of because you know we've kind of established that there's they, they they leave the novel and then they take some of the themes in the novel and they do other stuff with them. But they get into this really interesting conflict between kind of science and supernaturalism or, you know, gothic and, and the present. But there was a version made in 2004 that was a, a television miniseries. And it was the one where they really decided to try to stick as much to the book as possible. And, of course, there were still things they had to change because, again, in the novel there's no creation scene. And the people involved in, in this particular production were still interested in adding that in. But they did follow what Shelley was doing in terms of making the creature articulate and sympathetic but still a murderer and, uh, you know, making the, the Victor Frankenstein character – have all the complexity that it did that that it does in the novel. Um, so that's the, the that one was made in two thousand four. Then, of course, um, in the middle of all that, you have um, all sorts of different variations on it, from Lady Frankenstein, which is kind of a sexploitation film that was German produced that ended up being redistributed in the U.S. Um, to uh, there's a a, a one of the kaiju films, one of the Japanese giant creature films, is two big teenage Frankensteins fighting each other. <laughs> <laughs> so there's there's lots of weirdness. And one of my personal favorites, Andy Warhol's Frankenstein, which oh. was an extremely graphic, violent, uh, very sexualized uh, 3D film that was made um, in the in the mid 70s. And, is, it, you know, it seemed very gimmicky at the time. But historically speaking, it's got a lot of really interesting things in it. And of course, Andy Warhol had very little to do with it. It was they were it was directed by Paul Morrissey. Um, but it's an Udo Kier uh, plays the, the 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 doctor in it. And he, you know, creates absolutely beautiful things that then fall apart and do bad things. So you know, that's kind of the tradition. 
Well, there you go. Well, there is as much of the history of uh, Frankenstein as you would. Is that enough? That's Does that it? cover it? That's it. I th- I, I don't know. Do you want to anything else? Huh? Do we leave anything out? I, you know, I don't. I mean, I think that it's. I I think it's going to continue to be a, a story template that people are going to find mm-hmm. value in. There's um, the you know, the potential for talking about Frankenstein in relationship to the digital era has barely been touched. You know, the the I mean, in in a sense. Um, the some of the films about artificial life forms are part of it, you know, about uh, uh, cyborgs and interacting with them and Turing tests and how can you tell when something's a machine or when something's human and at what point does it not matter anymore? And I think that's kind of at the core of what a lot of Frankenstein's about. So for the sake of that, it's worth returning to. And the novel's great. The novel is it's a quick yeah. read and it's very well written and it's. Um, there's a, there's a version that came out um, fairly recently that's annotated by scientists to talk about the scientific accuracy of it. It's it's now pretty widely considered to be the first science fiction novel. So it's actually got this huh. kind of double genre identity too, because I think of it always as a horror tale. But there's a lot of people who think of it as as essentially the first science fiction novel. So, okay. So there's. Much more about Frankenstein than you wanted to know, probably. But you've but, piqued my interest. I'm going to actually pick up a copy of the novel that, and, and actually do the read. And it's it's public domain, so right. just you just go on your computer and go to the Project Gutenberg, which I think is, I think there's a birthday for Project Gutenberg that's is happened it? in the recent past. Huh. But yeah, you can find copies of it there really easily. And yeah, it's uh, just, you know, again, if you're looking, there were some revisions done between the 1818 version and the 1823 version, so you get to pick which one you want and go from there cool all right well that's it for today thanks again thank you thanks adam happy halloween 